Sorry, I don't love you. A friend I've grown accustomed to. Because with you, something isn't wrong. Something isn't wrong. Hey, everyone, something welcome to a new episode of Welcome to Geekdom. I know that's a little redundant at times, but this week I have on James Shotwell, who is returning, and this week we are talking all about True Romance, the 1993 movie directed by Tony Scott. James, how are you doing today? I'm doing uh, surprisingly well, considering that it's Inauguration Day. Yes, I am definitely glad we are podcasting instead of watching that. <laughs> you know, I... I... I'm so bad at time that when I thought we were doing this at noon and I was like, noon, that's when the inauguration is. So I won't have to watch it. And then I realized that I live in central time. And so noon was 11 o'clock for me. My, my times are all off. I had to know way too many today. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, crap, that means that means I do have to watch it. And I didn't have to. But like at the same time, I kind of felt compelled to because if something crazy did happen, I wanted to like see it, you know? Yeah. See, I just skipped it all together because it's only 10 in the morning for me. And I was like, I'm not starting my day with that. <laughs> I know. I actually had to call a publicist for work today that lives in uh, Seattle at like nine this morning. And they were like, you realize that I have this friggin' thing in like an hour? <laughs> when you ask me this right now, and I was like, I'm sorry, I thought I would start your day on a slightly less terrible basis, but maybe I was wrong. Yeah. Well, yeah. you suggested that I watch True Romance because you mentioned it being one of your favorite films. I was not entirely sure if you were being sarcastic or not. So, you know, I was, I happily obliged and finally watched it, and we finally got this scheduled. So, what is it about this movie that made you want to talk about it on the podcast today? Well, when I was on last time, we talked about Nicolas Cage, who does not appear in True Romance. <laughs> Surprisingly. Off, yeah, when we got off the conversation. I was thinking about like, I was like, what would be something else good that I could talk about at great length? And something, a thing I got asked more often, like my favorite album is my favorite movies. And I always, I have like a, I have like four that I'll go to pretty much all the time. But my, my big two are network the 1976 or 77 drama that won best picture that like no one under the age of 25 has seen most of the time <laughs> and then true romance which uh, no one under the age of 25 has seen most of the time either and then and then like something a little bit more so i usually say jaws or clerks or something like that but my big two movies and like if i could if you could take everything that i ever claimed to love in the world of uh entertainment tv or film i think that they would either fall under it's kind of like network or it's kind of like true romance like those are the two films that kind of define what i enjoy okay and for anyone who has not watched the movie i'm just going to quickly read off the imdb description here so it says in detroit a lonely pop culture geek marries a call girl steals cocaine from her pimp and tries to sell it in hollywood meanwhile the owners of the cocaine the mob track them down in an attempt to reclaim it so i read that description and i was like all right all right i could get into this movie and when i go back and watch older movies Obviously, with how much technology has improved and everything, so, you know, even stunts are better now than they were then. And obviously, you know, the blood and the gore and everything is handled much better, I would say, in more recent movies than in movies from basically, I would say, probably pre-2000s, even maybe, you know some of the early 2000s movies aren't too great but in this Definitely. because it like i said 1993 which i wasn't even one when this movie came out yet i turned one in december Ugh. of 93 <laughs> so obviously i would not have 
been remotely close to seeing this when it came out. But I watched it and I went into it like, okay, there's definitely going to be a cheese factor in this movie. It's There are moments that are going to be completely cheesy and don't look great. And I was fine with that. So overall, I would say this is definitely an enjoyable movie. I know a lot of people aren't too fond of this type of movie because I know anytime I mention Quentin Tarantino in a movie, my mom's like, no, thank you. So, you know, it's not for everyone, but I feel like this isn't quite on the level of something like Magnificent Seven or Magnificent Eight or, you know, some of the more recent Tarantino stuff. So what is it that kind of draws you to this movie? Well, just real quick before we get to that, it is worth pointing out that this is the only film that Quentin Tarantino wrote but didn't direct. Right. But if you ask him, it still takes place in the shared universe of all of Quentin Tarantino's films. Okay. Which which is kind of a weird like tidbit of information, but he he wanted to direct it. I think it's, but it 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 kind of fell apart because he, he this movie comes out in ninety three. This is right after Quentin Tarantino became like the biggest thing in indie film since right. the beginning of time, and so he actually sold the script for this movie for $50,000, which is like the bare minimum that he could have gotten paid at the time. And then Tony Scott, the man who gave us Top Gun of all movies, is, is the guy who took on this film. And he's he's now dead, which is super tragic. But it's it is a weird it's a weird that Quentin Tarantino doesn't direct it because you can tell that it's a Quentin Tarantino movie that he's not making. Like all right. the parts are there, but it doesn't it doesn't have the slickness that Quentin Tarantino films kind of have. And from Tony Scott's perspective, this movie feels incredibly commercial, but it still has all those Tarantino elements that make it not so. Where you're like, it's 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 a weird thing to watch because the tone of the movie is a little bit different than what's actually happening in the story itself. It's a little bit more lighthearted when you think about what's actually happening on screen. Right. Um, but what attracts me to this movie? That's a good question. I don't know when I first saw this movie. I've tried to think about it a lot, but I am a massive fan of uh pretty much everyone in this cast but most notably christian slater like early 90s christian slater is who i hope to always be in my life because in (laughs) in the early 90s christian slater was like the coolest guy in the world and he was in all these ridiculous movies true romance might be like the biggest of the set but he did uh he did this other this comedy called cuffs that i absolutely love that is like a movie that's 90s cheesy and bad but great because it's so bad and he did all these other like uh, War of Roses, and he did. Oh, there's one where he's like a radio host. Pump up the volume. That all of these movies are like super 90s. Like they could not be made at any other point in time. And he was the guy to do them. And he was just like the king of friggin' cool. And when you watch this movie, it's hard to not want to be one of the two main characters. I mean, I assume that you probably don't want to be Christian Slater as much as you might want to be Alabama Whitman. But they're both they're both really interesting characters that I think have a lot of relatability, despite the fact that Clarence Worley is really kind of a piece of shit he's like a pop culture geek and that's super relatable but on the lowdown like he finds a bunch of drugs and his first notion is to sell them um and alabama (laughs) is it's here's the thing is that description when you read it i was like that is almost like a the worst description of what this movie actually is because to call her a prostitute isn't really fair (laughs) because it was what Um, a whole three days that she was yeah yeah (laughs) yeah she says that she's this is that he's her first date and it's it's his first time finding a prostitute. And that right there is like classic Tarantino. They're having a meet cute scenario 
in a situation that most people wouldn't find romantic. It's a guy meeting a prostitute at a diner. Uh, and he doesn't know she's a prostitute at the top of the film, but he's right. a guy meeting a prostitute and they fall in love. Like that premise, it works in Pretty Woman because he doesn't, for like a similar reason, but this movie is definitely not Pretty Woman. <laughs> yeah, not by any means. <laughs> so I guess what, what really pulls me to it is I relate a lot to Clarence. I relate a lot to Clarence Worley. And I think this is Patricia Arquette in this movie has to be one of my first crushes. She's definitely it's still one of my like biggest crushes. I think Patricia Arquette is still beautiful. But like in my mind, my perfect woman for the longest time would be Alabama Whitman because she's a badass and she's gorgeous and she's actually tougher than Clarence. Which is right. like at the top of the movie, you think he's going to be the hero that saves the day. But really, she ends up saving him. Yeah. And it's crazy to me how many big names they got in this movie, even though a lot of those big names weren't playing these big characters that we're used to seeing them play. Especially, you know, you have Brad Pitt as the stoner roommate of Michael Rappaport. And, you know, that was just such a funny dynamic to see in this movie because going into the movie I didn't go look and see who all was going to be in it I sort of just went into it not knowing a whole lot about it so for to see even Samuel L. Jackson for what maybe a minute in the movie that's just crazy to me that they would use someone so big for such a small amount of time but it's still so effective you're absolutely right about the casting. If you look at the IMDb page, like the entire set before the cutoff is all actors that most people would recognize. Right. <laughs> um, and the Brad Pitt one, super, how big he got after this movie. Yeah. The fun thing about that role, though, is that that's not what his character was written as. Brad Pitt came on set and suggested that he be a stoner who never leaves the couch. <laughs> that sounds about right. And like you said, he hadn't really hit that run he had you know we didn't get seven until 95 and then fight club wasn't until 99 so brad pitt wasn't quite there yet but if you look at these names obviously samuel L. jackson had done plenty of stuff before 93 probably and you have val kilmer dennis hopper gary oldman who i did not recognize at all in this movie, like I had to go look at IMDb after and I was like, who was that guy? Because he plays the pimp Drexel Spivy in this and he has dreads and it looks like he either has like a glass eye or is blind in one eye or something going on there. And I was just like, I have no clue who this could be. It's funny because almost every character in this movie has a ridiculous name. Like they're yes. all like you just said Drexel Spivy as if it's as if it's a common name. <laughs> but there's Clarence Worley, Clifford Worley, Alabama Whitman, Vincenzo Cacati, <laughs> Big Don, Big Dick Ritchie. Uh, there's there's a lot of weird character names, but that, that's a Tarantino thing. Like that's another one of those Tarantino elements where it's like this wouldn't really happen. Like if Tony Scott had just made a studio movie, it would be like Paul and Sarah, but instead right. it's Clarence <laughs> and Alabama. <laughs> yeah plus i love that this movie for it's a movie that plays into your love of cinema because in the opening scene for people that haven't seen it the top of the movie clarence is eating in a diner when he meets this beautiful woman alabama who he doesn't know is a prostitute and he talks her into they go to the movies they see a kung fu movie it's a fantastic thing but it really plays into the idea of like not only the love of cinema and how it's like a cure-all for even 
hard times, but then it turns into this runaway romance story that just happens to like hit a bad hit a bad slice of trouble along the way. But for the most part, it's like it's just a love story. It's a love story that you can kind of feel okay about watching because a lot of love stories are like schmaltzy and they're pretty forgettable, pretty generic. But this is a love story where you you literally have to root for them. Right. They hit these walls, and it's the only movie that I've ever seen that it, where the women get it as bad as the men do in terms of violence and things that happen. When James Gandolfini beats the shit out of Patricia Arquette in the third act, it's like it's hard to watch. Right. I mean, for you, I'm always curious. This is a movie that I wish I could have been there for because some movies I tell people to watch, and I'm like, I'm sure they'll enjoy them. But this movie has several sequences where I want to see how your face like accepts the visuals that are being thrown into it. Because I think that there are very romantic scenes that make people kind of ooh and all, and then there's like very it, it balances super sweetness with grisly violence in a really interesting way. Yeah, I think just personally for me, I don't know if violence in movies is something that necessarily bothers me quite as much because as someone who played a ton of video games and you know there were shooter games and that stuff when I was growing up, I never really got the impression i guess just because of the way i'm wired that people would see these things and then go emulate them in real life and obviously we know that does happen with people but for me i've always been able to sort of separate what happens in tv movies video games from reality so to me i don't know if i necessarily had a specific look on my face especially during the scene you mentioned while it was certainly brutal i think because of how the effects were done and you know just the blood in general it didn't look too realistic enough for me and i by no means think that's a downfall of the movie because like i said this was early 90s so i was not judging it solely on how things came across either effect wise or stunt wise but it was a brutal scene and you sort of just see in Alabama's face, she's not enjoying it, obviously, but she knows that she's going to survive through it. And I think that's the moment when you realize, okay, she is like the backbone of this movie. Oh, she absolutely is. I mean, I can say that I love Christian Slater, but this is the movie that really, that really makes you root for Patricia Arquette. I mean, her character is also like endlessly interesting because Clarence, when you meet him at the top of the movie, he's a guy who puts everything on front street. Like he basically just like bleeds his soul dry to Alabama. Like when they first meet, like he has no problem just being himself. Alabama is still trying to find out who she is. And she, she knows that she's gone down this path that isn't who she ever thought she was. She never thought she'd be a prostitute working in Detroit. And then she meets this guy and they go on this romance. And the whole movie, she's still figuring out who she is, whereas Clarence is just trying to be who he is when we meet him. She has she's she's discovering who she is in the most absurd situation and then having to kind of fight for that thing without even really knowing what it is. And I think that's part of what makes the very end of the movie. We're just going to spoil the shit out of it. But at the very <laughs> end of the movie, I mean, I love the last the last scene of the film when they're driving in the car and he's putting his hand his head on her shoulder and she's reciting the big her big speech that ends with you're so cool you're so cool you're so cool right is uh you know she's she's done it she's figured it out 
and she's she found this guy that allowed her to be the person she wanted to be and not only did she find him but she was immediately thrust into a situation where she had to fight for that thing that she wanted so badly and she wins she wins by the very very weirdly wins by like accidents and foibles that only happen in tarantino movies but she like you you kind of you don't end up rooting for their relationship as much as you root for them as people right and you mentioned at the end there we also see them you know, however many years in the future with a kid on the beach. And, you know, so you sort of realize, okay, so this was one crazy ride, but it did settle itself down in the long run. So it's like they kind of got it out of their system and sort of, it was almost like this crazy love at first sight story. And it just turned into this sort of epic run in with the mob and everything. And, you sort of see it's like okay they got got that out of their system early on so you know now things can kind of go down from there and the end it's just such a peaceful scene too and to me it's really great that they end the movie that way after it being so chaotic throughout it's funny you say it that way because i've always kind of looked at the whole arc as a bit of a metaphor for a relationship because And both sides that go into it, because there's always one person who's like gung ho about the relationship and the other person is a little bit more cautious for whatever their reasons may be. And, you know, you start bonding and then there's like this insane passion, that scene where they're driving across the country and they stop and they have sex in the phone booth. Like it's an amazing shot. Like it's a beautiful piece of cinematography, but it's also like it's really it's romantic and sexy. But I think it's also very it's like you can tell that they love each other. Right. And then they get thrown in this world of chaos. And like you said. That, that passion gives way to what always follows immediately after in a relationship. And that's this uncertainty of will this thing live or die? And in the film, it's kind of brought to life as the mob is the resistance and they are literally fighting for their lives. And by the end of the film, somewhere along that battle, they come to the realization where they're like, well, she doesn't actually need him. And he doesn't need her. Like, he doesn't have to come back to the hotel when she's getting attacked by James Gandolfini. He could just leave her there and continue on with his life. And vice versa, she has the opportunity to leave him. But at the end of the film, they've gone from passionate to having their their connection tested to both individually deciding that this is what they want. They want one another. And then when we get to the end, it's like they've reached that point in the relationship that we all hope to get to where the worst has passed. And now they're able to be together. And yeah, they have battle scars and they have bruises and they have all these memories of these horrible things that have happened, but they both fought for what they wanted and they happened to agree that it was each other. And that's kind of, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment at the end of a otherwise dark film. Yeah. And it honestly doesn't matter that their sort of worst of it is so much worse than it will typically be for anyone in reality. You know, most of us are not going to have run ins with the mob, especially in the current day yeah so you know it's like even though it's in in the end it's an over exaggeration sort of of sort of the metaphor you, you take it to be as it works you know even though the chances of this happening are slim to none for i would say you know 99.999 percent of the people Most of us, if we found drugs, we would not immediately be like, oh, a pimp had these. I think it would be a great idea to go try and sell them. (laughs) So it's just so great to see that they sort of start with this relationship. 
they allow it to get as crazy as possible, and then they end it on a similar note that they started with. Yeah, it's true. And I guess the idea of the true romance aspect comes from like, he does an extreme at the beginning of the movie by killing her. He does the extreme and killing her pimp and right. her take her taking the beating from James Gandolfini. That's kind of her version of what he does. Like that's her sacrifice in a way, her commitment to their relationship. Cause she could, she could flip on him in that scene. And I think most people would, because it is an over the top scene of domestic violence that you're the whole time you watch it you're just like why does no one else in this hotel know this is going on because <laughs> he like throws her into walls and they break mirrors and it's it's a crazy fight sequence it's one of my favorites but something that i've always thought about this film and i mean this goes for every tarantino film but this one in particular because the characters are a lot more relatable than they are in say reservoir dogs or even pulp fiction i feel like this is one of those movies that's almost like it teaches you how to be cool or it has this like breath of just they're cool like you want there's something cool about it i don't even know another word to describe it but there's there's a there's something to like the the flow of the movie and the rhythm and the dialogue and just the way that they so passionately care for each other and Clarence's love of cinema. Like there's something just cool about it that makes you want to like it because you, part of your brain is like, this is interesting. This is cool. This is something. It's something different than what I'm usually shown. Yeah. And I think it helps that Christian Slater has a lot of charisma in this movie. And you mentioned, you know, being a pop culture geek, a lot of times we'll see movies like, high fidelity or something where these music geeks or pop culture geeks have a hard time sort of talking to other people and being in relationships and that sort of thing. But here, it's like he just lays everything out, like you said earlier, right up front, day one of meeting this woman. And he just sort of hopes for the best from there. And even though it goes from that one night being really great to quickly being pretty bad of a situation he still keeps that charisma going throughout the entire thing yeah and by giving us by giving us clarence at the beginning of the movie like the film basically has to make us relate to two main characters by giving us clarence the way it does in the opening sequence it it allows the movie to have a lot more fun with telling us who alabama is because you by by knowing everything we know about clarence when you hear that Alabama is a prostitute, your mind all, automatically makes all these prejudgments. And, I, and the same thing happens to Clarence. And because we already know him so well, we're kind of able to go on the journey with him. While, the, while I think Alabama is kind of the figurehead of the whole story, she's the, she's the anchor point, the glue of it all, we're kind of experiencing everything through Clarence's eyes. So we need that opening sequence where he's like, this is who I am and this is what I'm about and this is what matters to me. So that we're like, okay, that's who we are. I relate to this. And now we're watching it unfold through Clarence. And it's fun because it, it continuously gets to surprise you because you're like, oh, she's a prostitute. Oh, she's only been a prostitute for a few days. Oh, their love is real. And then it's like, oh shit, she might flip on him or she might leave him or she's stronger than we think she is. Like she defies your expectations over and over and over again, but only because you already know so much about Clarence that you kind of overestimate how well you know Alabama. Exactly. And I love how at the beginning of the movie, they give him these little quirks. You know, he is obsessed with Elvis. And then when he meets Alabama and takes her basically to the comic book store he works at and sort of lives at, I guess. <laughs> he gets all excited about, I believe it's a Spider-Man story, and he's telling her all about it. And we get to see that moment where, you know, she probably isn't 
really that into Spider-Man, but she was basically hired to do whatever he wants that night. And you, but you just see his face sort of light up when he starts talking about that Spider-Man story every time he mentions Elvis. So even though he's not, you know, quote unquote, being a pop culture geek, the whole movie, you get these flashes of it throughout and you're like, okay, you sort of are taken back to that's who this guy is. And I think that really sort of grounds his character along the way. Exactly. And to make us and to make us go along with the cocaine thing, because in most movies, if a character decides to sell cocaine and gets into the mob and all that stuff, you kind of look at it as like, oh, this is where they're making a wrong turn. But because of what we know about Clarence, we know that he's not like that's not the person that he is prior to right. Alabama. So he has this justification for doing everything that makes it OK for you, too, where you're just like, oh, usually I'd be like, this is a totally fucking stupid decision for somebody to do. But because he's doing it and I know he's doing it because he loves this person and I relate to him so much, you kind of give him a pass. Like you're willing to go along with some of his more extreme decisions because there's a part of you that kind of connects with him where you're like, well, I guess for love, I might do it. Yeah. And. It's important to note, too, that he's underselling the drugs. He's selling them for way less than what, I guess, street value would be for them. And he sort of just wants the money so he can go have a life with Alabama. He was like, okay, you know, I believe it was 200000 That's plenty. You know, we don't need this to sell at street value so someone else can take care of that because that's not my thing. I just want to go have this life with this woman. And, you know, Alabama sort of doesn't push him to sell it for street value. She is just going along with it because she wants the same thing he does. You're absolutely right. And I, you know, it's funny. I was I was just thinking about it before we hopped on here because I was like, I bet she's going to ask me what my favorite part of this movie is. And <laughs> it's weird because as much as I love Clarence and Alabama and like, my wife and I, Lisa, we walked down, she walked down the aisle to the love theme in this movie, the little, the, the xylophone, dun, 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 dun. yeah, the, the okay. little xylophone song that plays. Uh, she walked down the aisle to that and like our, our wedding invites said, you're so cool on it. Like we quote that shit to each other all the time. But my favorite scene in this movie is actually between Dennis Hopper, who plays Clarence's father, Clifford. And Christopher Walken, who's like one of our lead bad guys, right? Because it is it is another one of those super cool scenes. It's a classic scene, and but it's the first time in the movie, the first half, like it's it's fun and it's slick, and you fall in love with Alabama and stuff. But once you get to this moment, it's the first scene of tension in the film, and the dialogue is so crisp. And I just I love watching the two of them fight with each other through words because dennis hopper can't move because he's kind of restrained in a seat and christopher walken is talking to him and he's talking to him in that way that villains always do in spy movies where they talk to them like it's a normal situation and nothing weird is going on and dennis hopper just refuses to give him any information about clarence and you kind of get to watch them slowly fight with each other through just dialogue and they they never explode entirely they're both very very calm and just saying horrific things to each other and it's always something that just fascinates it's one of my favorite pieces of acting maybe ever just because it's so over the it builds to such an over-the-top sequence but it's like they could be cordial with each other and they choose not to be yeah and in that scene too we have luca who is played by paul ben victor and he doesn't speak english so you know he's sort of just like looking around kind of wondering what's going on as the dad is telling christopher walken this story and everything and he he just thinks it's hilarious that 
you know, this guy knows he's going to die and he's going to sit here and tell me a story to piss me off even more, basically. Uh, and you always know a movie is super cool when uh, they name their child Elvis. <laughs> like, that's something about Clarence in this movie is that's another one of those things that they give us. So we know right away that he loves comic books. He loves kung fu movies. Right. And he, he loves going to the movies. That's very specific. He likes going to the cinema. And and then he has this whole thing where he talks about jailhouse rock for like 30 seconds and it's yeah. just to establish that he also loves elvis and clearly he does i mean he wears the big sunglasses he looks like he, he looks like a poor kid who wants to be elvis um but it's it's i almost like elvis more because of this movie like you're listening to him talk about it and you're like yeah, i guess elvis kind of is like the ultimate cool guy and then they right. named their son elvis and in any other movie you would be like Oh, that's so stupid. But in this, again, you're just like, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, they do such a good job of making you accept this universe and that these people exist within a world that is not that unlike ours. That when when you find out that they named their kid Elvis Worley at the end of the movie, you're like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Well, sure, sure. Why not? Why wouldn't they do that? And, you know, aside from the scene with his dad, Clifford, and Vincenzo, I believe is how you pronounce that, but... You know, you kind of see that moment coming the minute him and his crew go up to the dad's trailer and everything. But I feel like it still gives the movie a lot of meat to it, that all those scenes with the dad in it, even though it wasn't a huge chunk of the movie, it's like, okay, you sort of instantly know what Clifford and Clarence's relationship is like. And then you sort of have this bad outcome come from that and you know Clarence has already left with Alabama so he's not going to know that this has happened right away and then you have the mob coming after them out in LA in Hollywood and I think it's just one of those things do we even really see him find out that his dad has been killed by these guys no I don't think it I don't I don't think they ever mention it in the rest of the film I think it's just like that acceptance that if you don't hear from me something's happened or maybe he doesn't know I mean at the end of the movie I right. just assume they're driving back to Detroit so he might see he's still not he still doesn't know but, but they kind of set it up that he and his dad don't have a relationship where they've talked to each other a lot he only comes to him when they need each other but by his father's accent but accent actions you realize that that they're one and the same because he does for Clarence what Clarence ends up doing for Alabama Right. And I think if I were to add anything to the movie, I would have loved to see the aftermath of that whole situation. You know, maybe Clarence finds out about his dad when they go back to Detroit. You know, maybe they stop by on the way back and he sort of not necessarily finds the dad, but realizes something has happened. And I think that would have just added a little something to him as a character especially because you know in the end his dad was not willing to give him up even though the address was sitting right there on the refrigerator door or something you know the dad still was not going to just willingly let these guys get what they wanted it's true he just he doesn't give in and not only does he not give in because that would be enough but he also comes after the fact that he's sicilian i can't even quote it because it's so dirty what he, right, what he tells yeah. him about sicilians but it's it's 
that's what I'm talking about when I say they're they're so kind to each other. But he says that <laughs> thing about Sicilians, and it's so dirty and it's so hurtful that like I think I audibly gasp when I hear it, see it sometimes because it's just like I can't believe that they cut that deep. It's it goes yeah. from like zero to one hundred in an instant. And like I said earlier, it's like the dad has to know that this is going to piss this mob guy off, and he's probably knows right away that okay this is the end of the road for me these guys coming up here looking for my son you know not really knowing what he's done exactly but he still defends him to the end and i think you know that's what makes that scene so great and it really stands out in this movie even though it doesn't totally have anything to do with the relationship between clarence and alabama i think that's just one of those things where it's like okay Yes, he hasn't talked to his son in however many years. His son just shows up and then trouble sort of follows him and brings it to his trailer door there. And he isn't willing to give up that connection they just had, even if it were momentarily. You're absolutely right. And uh, while we've been talking, it actually dawned on me that uh, maybe the first time I, I heard of this movie might have been because of Fallout Boy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely an emo band that probably like some lyrics. But every time I watch the movie, I always feel like the entire emo movement can be summarized in um, that line that Clarence says to Alabama, which I just I had to Google to make sure I said it right. But he has a great quote that's, you just said you love me. Now, if I say I love you and just throw caution to the wind and let the chips fall where they may, and you're lying to me, I'm going to fucking die. Like that is all <laughs> of emo music right. in a nutshell. It, it, like it, it, before emo was a thing, Clarence Worley got it. Like he got it and he just said it in a way that's so perfect. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of those things that happened right at the beginning of the movie too. It's, after they oh, yeah. spent this night together and then he find he thinks she has left but then realizes you know the window's open and she's sitting out in front of the billboard that's right outside where he, he's staying at the comic book shop or whatever and it's just this crazy moment that seems super unrealistic but in a way, it's like you get where he's coming from. And, you know, because he basically wears his heart on his sleeve from the moment he meets her through the end of the movie, it's just a nice little moment. And, you know, it's funny that you bring up that correlation to music because sometimes I'll listen to these lyrics and I'll be like, do these things happen to everyone? Or, you know, is this like such a one time situation type thing that it seems crazy to hear it said out loud. And you sort of just start to think about these things and how they relate to other things or how other people might feel. And I think that's where this movie and its title, True Romance, really sort of come together. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's also the only movie where a character can call someone doggy daddy and it's okay. Like, you just roll with it. Um, the dialogue is so great. There are so many things about it. Like, I, I, I know that you, uh, you said that you probably didn't react as much to like the violence and stuff like that, but it is a movie that I feel like it's a modern map. I'm just going to say it's a modern masterpiece in my mind. And I think most people agree because on IMDb, despite being 24 years old jesus christ um <laughs> it has it has almost 200,000 reviews and it still has an 8.0 on imdb like that's right. super high for imdb <laughs> um but it, it's a perfect 
amalgamation of like a romance movie with an action movie with a with a gangster movie with kind of a coming of age story and then just a movie that's kind of cool for the sake of being cool like we don't need all of the pop culture stuff that it ties in but it helps to make it better and the reason that we decided to do this podcast we should probably get to is the that last week i got to stay at this hotel right because it still exists it's a lot smaller than i thought it was (laughs) i think my big takeaway from california is that everything is smaller than you think it is yeah i mean you sort of look around downtown LA and it's like okay yeah sure they have these big buildings but it's nowhere near the size of New York or even Philly when I was there felt bigger in a sense than LA did and I think people just sort of see LA as this thing they can't have so then when they go there and they see it they're like oh this sort of isn't what I was expecting. And, you know, as someone who is from Orange County and currently back in Orange County again now, it's like LA isn't that appealing to me anymore. I mean, I know, as you and I both know, as people who work in the music industry, or in my case, are trying to work in the music industry, a lot of jobs are based in LA. And I'm at the point where I'm just like, but why do you have to all be in LA? Because, you know, I was interning at Fearless Records and they were down here in Orange County. And it was great for me because I could drive from my parents' house in Orange County and get there fairly easily. And it's like, you know, not everyone wants to necessarily live in LA, but if you don't live in LA and work in LA, it's just sort of a nightmare. And even though the city isn't big in a sense as far as the buildings and everything it's so crowded there that you sort of lose sight of what stuff sort of actually is in LA and what happens in LA sometimes so I definitely know what you're saying by it was not what you were thinking it was going to be yeah and I had been there before so I knew a little bit but I guess I've watched True Romance so many times that I thought I was going to like be just I was so happy to be staying at the Safari Inn which is ironic considering the role it plays in the story (laughs) but it was so small not only was it so small but I rolled in and I was like I I thought they would be able to tell from the smile on my face that I was way too happy to be at this crappy (laughs) hotel uh, like I was just like, I'm here to check into the safari in. And she was like, okay. And then I walked outside and like, not even in like a room, just on the outside wall, there's like some photos nailed to the wall of like the poster for True Romance. Like that's all the recognition they give this film. Right. And I was, it was so underwhelming that I was like, I could have stayed anywhere and I chose to stay in this hellhole just because yeah. I like some <laughs> stupid movie that this hotel doesn't even seem to like anymore. Like yeah. it drew the whole thing like ate at me. And the, the weird thing is, is that two years ago, three years ago now, four, four years ago now in 2013, they did a 20th anniversary True Romance Festival at that hotel where they had Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette and Bronson Pinchot and a few other people that are still alive from the film show up and like talk about it and they screened it. And so like I read about it and they did it at this hotel. So in my head, I was like, there's enough room here to do this event. And I got there and I cannot tell you how they did this event at this location. <laughs> like it's so impossibly small. Like I know that they screened the movie out by the pool, but the pool is like 
10 feet long. Like it's a tiny little pool on the side of a major strip in Burbank that's like a mile from Disney World. Like there's nothing alluring or uh, Disney World, Disney Studios, I should say. <laughs> Very different. Yeah, um, <laughs> a little bit. There's just, but, but there's just nothing, there's no allure to it. Like when you see it, it immediately kills whatever magic you have about the film. Plus in terms of the context of the film where we know they're just driving across the country from Detroit. Why they would stop at that hotel makes no sense. Like of all the hotels in Los Angeles and Burbank and whatever, right. like you have to get off the highway and drive two miles to hit the safari in. So, cause in the movie, it's like, they just pull off the side of the road and they're like, well, I guess we'll stay here. But it's like, no, this is like a choice. It's a very specific choice. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, especially when you have movies that are filmed on location in places like LA or New York even, sometimes you'll go visit these places expecting it to look like it did in the movies. And then you s sort of realize that the cameras make these places look so much bigger and so much more extravagant, I guess, than they actually are. Because even when you're seeing that in, I have not been to it personally, so you'll have to sort of speak more towards this. But it's like you see that in and it sort of looks like it's a decent size and there's you know, quite a few rooms and everything. And you sort of drive up and they just park their car in the middle there, which would probably piss a lot of people off in LA now. So you can never get away with something like that. So it's sort of like they give you this unrealistic expectation of how cool this Safari Inn is supposed to be. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. It's, it was a little underwhelming. I'm glad you didn't come because I know you had just watched the movie. And even if you've been in Burbank and you've seen it for yourself, it is it definitely crushes a little bit of the magic of it all to be there. That isn't always the case. I've been to right. places where like, like I, I, we went to Austin last year, my wife and I, and we did like a Friday Night Lights tour. And a lot of the things from Friday Night Lights are now no longer what they were in the show. But a few of them are. And when we found one that was, it was like, oh my God, this is this is where this thing happened in, right. in this TV show that's been off the air for a decade. But uh, in this case, going to the Safari Inn does kill the, the romance of true romance just just a bit. It's also incredibly cheap. <laughs> it's it's uh, like that. At least that's honest. Like it is a right. very cheap hotel. <laughs> they could afford it off the side of the highway. Um, but they didn't. Yeah, I, I, I was I can honestly say that I was the person at the Safari Inn who cared the most that true romance had been made there. <laughs> Yeah, and like you said, you know, with this movie being 24 years old now, you probably don't even have people working at the place that have seen the movie. So, you know, they're probably just like, oh. It's very true. You know, here's one of these people. <laughs> a few times I was outside and I would pass like someone a little bit older than me who was outside having a cigarette or doing whatever. And they would say hi to me. And every time I thought about being like, did you know they filmed True Romance here? Just to, just to <laughs> see if like I was the only one who was there because of a movie that is now two and a half decades old. Because in my brain, that's not weird. Like It's not right. weird to be like, oh, I'm finally getting around to the True Romance Hotel. Am I right? It took way too long. <laughs> um, and that I'm not the only one who like sought it out for years. But apparently, I was. At least this on this particular weekend. I did not get a vibe that anyone else cared about movies, let alone what movie had been filmed there. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, there are plenty of places like that in LA. I know last year I went down the street that it's 
a historical street. So it's like these houses are kind of historical landmarks and whatnot. But the Charmed House is there. I believe one of the houses used in Thriller is on that street. So you have these different houses all within the same block, basically, that have been used for various different things. And, you know, people actually live at these houses. So then it's like you go see them and you see these people having a party across the street and you're like, oh, this kind of isn't what I was expecting. And then you have a few of the houses that desperately needed work on them. Like one of the houses, you couldn't even walk up the steps to the front door because the steps just weren't there. It was just like a big hole in the front of the house. So you sort sometimes you see these things in person and you're like, oh, I was sort of expecting, you know, that that house to have stairs in front of it so someone could still walk up to it. So, you know... Like I said earlier, every once in a while, you get these unrealistic views of a place. And when you go there, it's a little underwhelming. And I wouldn't say those houses were underwhelming because they're, you know, these big, beautiful houses. I don't know if you ever watched Charmed. I didn't really, but my parents did. So I knew what house they were talking about. And, you know, you sort of go look at them and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's where they filmed this. But you know, it's sort of just there. And it's like, no one really cares anymore at this point. <laughs> That's true. No one really cares at this point, unfortunately. <laughs> it is, I kind of wanted to like stand up on something and be like, don't you know what happened here? <laughs> right. Alabama sacrificed herself for Clarence in this hotel somewhere. Did and you stay is, the in the exact is, room or did you stay in a no. different room? Okay. No, I think the exact room. So I think that those rooms are reserved because that was like a bigger room that kind of had like a kitchenette and stuff. I yeah, think I think it was the honeymoon suite or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like a honeymoon suite or like a long term, like a week plus kind of room. So I didn't say in that, right. but I will say that the, it didn't look like they had redecorated since 1993. <laughs> uh, but the one thing there was like, there, you know, the sheets, I think they had like a red comforter and white sheets, but like the, uh, the flare that they had added to the, to the room design was that they had these thin long pillows on the bed that were that same crappy animal print that Alabama wears in the movie, like the, uh, like the leopard cheetah, whatever it is. Right. Um, they had like these big gaudy pillows that had that print on it. And again, no other reference, but I was just like, that's Alabama's crappy animal print. Like there is, like, there's a little piece of it where they're like, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll remind you if you remember. Yeah. And it sort of makes you wonder if the owner of the inn would be the same as the one who, you know, okayed it for a film location for the movie. And, you know, maybe the owner is secretly holding on to these little bits and pieces of the movie being there, but doesn't really care if anyone else knows. Well, this is something that I have a big problem. This is like, oh, this would be a whole nother podcast. We don't got to get that deep <laughs> into it. But I feel like movies like True Romance and a lot of great movies, even from as early as recently as the early 90s, are getting becoming lost because we don't have physical media that much anymore. So you have to have that movie has to be on a streaming service or else right. you don't know how you can't see it. It's hard to find. And like the chances of someone just going on a decision to binge a 1993 Tony Scott movie now that he's dead and the other, everyone else involved is alive and not talking about that movie anymore. It's pretty low. So like they aren't going to pay $10 to watch it on iTunes. Like it has to be on a streaming service. And most movies aren't, especially most right. movies aren't streaming services. Don't care about them. And that's just not how it works. So 
I, I'm glad that you took the time to watch it because I, this is one of those movies that I'm like, I will die before people forget that this was a movie that like was amazing because it's yeah. great. And just because, <laughs> just because, and it, but it made no money. Did you see it? It cost 13 million and it made 12. Ouch. <laughs> you're like, couldn't yeah, just get another million to break even guys. Come right? on. Yeah. And when you watch it, you're like, how did this movie do so poorly? It had a, it had a script by Quentin Tarantino. It came out a year after Reservoir Dogs, a year before Pulp Fiction. So like height of Tarantino. Slater is huge. Patricia Arquette was doing pretty well right then. Tony Scott had already made Top Gun. Like all of the components are there for it to be good. And above all, it's a good movie. But for some reason, like it just it just tanked and it has never gotten the love it deserves, despite anyone that has seen it will tell you it's really good. But most people just haven't seen it. Yeah. And it's funny that you bring up the streaming because that was sort of my go to because I have Netflix, I have Amazon Prime, and it's on none of those services. So, you know, it took me a little while to get a copy of it to watch because I don't really buy digital movies too often just because I feel like I'm going to have them in iTunes and they'll sort of just be sitting there and I'll forget about them because iTunes isn't really how I watch movies. I sort of just watch stuff through the streaming services now. And, you know, I was surprised. I was like, but look at all of the names in this movie. I, You know, once I had watched it, I was like, how is this not on any of the streaming services? And I definitely see what you're saying by, you know, a lot of these older movies have sort of just dropped off and they aren't even getting picked up on streaming services, which is a bummer, especially more so for someone like you, who is such a big movie buff. I know I probably won't ever come close to watching nearly as many movies as you do, but I do enjoy movies. It's just sort of I consume so many different types of media that movies have been the one thing to suffer the most, I guess, because I got really big into podcasts. Obviously, music is a priority for me. And getting into comics and everything, it's like, okay, one of these things is not going to be at the level I want it to be at. So this year, I'm sort of hoping to get a better balance of my movie watching. So basically, what I'm saying is the more you come on this podcast and recommend me movies to watch, and we talk about them, I'll watch some more movies. But I definitely will like I said, never be at that level that you are at because you actively review movies on a week to week basis. It's true. I watched I've watched six movies this week. <laughs> it's Friday. So I guess one a day so far this week, but I've some days that I watch two. But uh, you know, I actually thought about this and this is why I buy movies. We have like four hundred movies at our house. Uh, because I, I have this deep seated fear that I won't be able to find something that I want to tell somebody to watch or that I want to watch right. myself. And True Romance is one of those movies where it's like I, if I didn't own it, I would have to, I would have to buy an iTunes version. Like you, I don't, I don't use iTunes that way. Um, so I was gonna say that I've had this idea where I was like, we should, we could, if not that you or I need another thing to do, but if we <laughs> could, ha if we could find the time, it'd be fun to do like a movie history podcast where we only okay. talked about movies that people had to rent and like i could just mail you like a stack of old movies that i own and be like watch these and then we'll talk about these and then we'll just build a we'll, wa we'll work through like classic films that you can't find and try to build a revolution i, I would definitely be so, down for that because <laughs> i think us because like it's weird because you said I, I review a lot of movies and I watched I watched a lot of great stuff this week. I've been fortunate recently. I've been watching a lot of festival films that won't be out for weeks or months. Right. And it's fun. I love doing that. But something I, I've really found a greater passion for 
watching something from like 1993 or 1984. Like my wife and I have gotten on this thing where we'll find an actor we really love. Recently, it was Walter Matthau, who was in like Grumpy Old Men and stuff. And he's been dead forever. Um, but we recently thought about like what Walter Matthau movies haven't we seen? And we spent like three weeks just watching old like 50s, 60s, 70s movies that Walter Matthau was in that neither one of us had ever seen. And finding them was so freaking difficult. But it was so worthwhile because you watch this movie from like 1974 that's not available anywhere. They don't have it on Blu-ray. And right. then you see it and you're like, this is amazing. And it's almost, it's like when you discover a brand new band that you know none of your friends have heard. And you're like, oh my God, because it's almost the same thing in reverse. It's like a historical thing that everyone else has forgotten. And you're like, have you guys freaking seen the front page from 19, like Walter Matthau? It's amazing. He's like set in the 1920s and they would never make it today. And it's this incredible film that everyone should see, but no one can. And most people never will because of this stupid thing that we do with our movies where we have them all slapped off, slopped off. Like it's different with music because of the streaming age. You can now hear music that you never would have listened to otherwise. Like I could tell you to go listen to Chuck Berry and you don't have to buy a Chuck Berry record. But right. I want you to watch a Walter Matthau movie. You still have to buy a Walter Matthau movie, despite, as you already said, having access to like 30,000 free movies at any moment in time. Right. Yeah. And, you know, my parents have a decent sized DVD collection, but they never really continued to buy newer movies because they're still just the regular old DVDs. They didn't even upgrade to a Blu-ray player or anything. So that's sort of how long ago the movie collection in this house sort of started to dwindle and everything. And then obviously, you know, like I said, I have Netflix and Amazon Prime. So that's typically how I sort of keep up with some of the newer movies. And I know when we did the Nicolas Cage episode, you had me go watch some of his more recent stuff. And, you know, my mom is a fan of Nicolas Cage, but she wants to approach it to where she's watching the movies in chronological order. She won't sort of watch them out of order like I would because, you know, if it's not a movie that has a prequel or a sequel or something like that, I don't really care what order I watch them in. And, you know, so obviously for her, it's like she's going to have to find these movies in order of their release to sort of watch it the way she likes to watch them. And I think... It's so interesting how so many different people have different ways they watch movies. And like you said, you will watch a movie or even two some days. And I'm over here and I haven't watched a movie since probably last week or the week before even. I was kind of having a little moment where I was going through and watching some of the DC animated movies. So I am willing to watch movies. It's just one of those things where I'm really bad at doing it. <laughs> Uh, no, and I, I get that. I think, uh, I think it's good to find a healthy balance, but I'm with your mom. Like, I think it's important to watch things in chronological order. If you're going right. to dedicate yourself to a single filmmaker or actor, just because of watching what they're like, that's how you learn what it is that they do. I mean, obviously, you know what an actor does, you know what a director does, but why we, why we like Steven Spielberg, you learn by watching them in order because you see him start to do the same thing over and over and over again until his movies are essentially a compilation of his greatest hits from other movies. And it's kind of cool to see that happen. And I wanted to point this out for you. I know we got to get off here soon because I got to do this. I got to do this other thing. But in uh, we were talking about how this I was talking about how this movie is a movie that most people haven't seen. Even people in 1993 didn't see. And I just looked it up out of curiosity. This movie is the 98th highest grossing movie of 1993. Like that's that's how small it was even in 1993. Yeah. This was a year that gave us 
which was a year that gave us Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive, The Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, The Pelican Brief, Schindler's List came out this year, Groundhog Day, all movies that made way more money than right. True Romance. So it's so it's easy to understand how it got lost in the mix. Cool Runnings made more money than friggin' True Romance. Yeah. <sighs> well, like you said, there are always plenty of movies to talk about, and you could probably come up with a whole list for me. So we will definitely work that out and continue to have you sort of be our movie guru here for the podcast. Yeah. And, you know, obviously getting suggestions from you will greatly deep in my movie catalog so <laughs> i definitely look forward to having you come back on and i know you said you had to go because you have something else you have scheduled in about two minutes or so so thank you so much for coming on james hopefully oh absolutely no problem i uh this is this is probably my favorite podcast to appear on even more so than my own i think i've done it more than <laughs> as of late my own podcast will be back real quick you can find me on twitter it's james d shotwell uh, just like a sound shot plus well. Uh, and then uh, friggin' my podcast is Inside Music, and you can read the Holix Daily blog, or you can just visit jameshotwell.com. I got some new promo shots. I look pretty good. I'm pretty okay with it. <laughs> the best thing I brought back from LA were these new promo shots. And uh, everyone should watch True Romance. Like, oh, maybe this would be like every two to three months, I'll come on and we'll just talk about an old movie that I, I think everyone should see. And the first one can be True Romance. Yeah, we can definitely set that up. And of course, your film reviews are over at Substream. I'll link to all of these things where people can find you. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.